Good morning, everybody. If we can uh, take our Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 31 and verse 36. Seeing if we can make it through verse 42 this morning. The title of our message this morning is Our Multifaceted God. You know, it's interesting that poison rock he was talking about, one drop will kill you. I wish Gabe had made a more bolder statement. Half the audience laughed, others gave me the the choke sign. Of course, it's my, as you all know, it's my wife that feeds me all these jokes before I get up here. As we continue our movement through the book of Genesis, God is raising up a nation, the nation of Israel. His hand was first on Abraham, then Isaac, and now God is at work through this man, Jacob. Jacob, uh, it's interesting, has spent, as we're going to see today, 20 years in Haran. He, Haran, that circle up north there, and he fled to Haran from the land of Canaan, sort of fleeing from the murderous wrath of his brother Esau. He has spent uh, 20 years in Haran. He he went there really as a single man, empty-handed. He now has two wives, two bridesmaids, 11 sons and one daughter, and he has actually become wealthy in Haran in spite of his contact with Laban there, constantly trying to cheat him. He, at God's timing, has now left Haran. 20 years have passed. He's returning to Canaan. And Laban, of course, does not like the fact that Jacob has left. The reason that Laban doesn't like the fact that Jacob has left is Rachel, one of Jacob's wives has taken Laban's household idols. We've talked about the significance of those financially. And as Jacob is returning to Canaan, uh, essentially the two of them meet in the uh, Transjordan Mountains. That would be east of the Jordan River. Laban is moving faster than Jacob, and so it takes Laban about, what, seven days to overtake Jacob, but the two of them meet, the two of them come into conflict, and sort of the story ends with Laban, with Jacob sort of narrating back to Laban as the two of them meet in the Jordanian mountains there, of how God has been faithful to Jacob even though Laban has done everything within his power to 
frustrate Jacob, to cheat Jacob, to rip Jacob off. And this is a kind of a situation that you'll find yourself in as a Christian. God, I believe, will intentionally place his people into circumstances where they are not treated fairly. Uh, My wife was just reminding me as the scripture was being read of a circumstance that we were in many, many years ago in California. And yet, in spite of the unfairness of the circumstances, I can clearly tell you that in the course of time, God has not only used those circumstances in my life, but I came out of those circumstances way ahead. Even though the people that put me in those adverse circumstances did not have my best interest at heart. This is what Jacob is now explaining back to Laban. So when you see this pattern in your life, don't, don't resist it. Don't get mad at God over it. It's part of the education that God puts us through, the tutoring that God puts us through, the tutelage that God puts us through. And if we don't walk through something like this, we only have a book knowledge of God's faithfulness. We know that God is faithful because the Bible says so. It becomes a completely different matter when you see the hand of God and the faithfulness of God in your life by way of practice. And unless practice combines with book knowledge, we have a superficial view of who God is. God loves us too much to see us stay in that state of shallowness. So he will put us in unfair circumstances. So essentially we pick it up there with verse 36 with Jacob's response back to Laban. There has been kind of an emotional response, verse 36. We might call that Genesis 31, verse 36, righteous anger. And then Jacob gives to Laban a challenge. It says in verse 36, then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban, and Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of your own household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between the two of us. In other words, if I've stolen anything, produce the evidence. Of course, as we have talked about, Jacob does not know what Rachel has done. But Jacob stands before Laban as an innocent man. If if I'm guilty of anything, then produce the evidence. Put up or shut up, in other words. And then beginning in verse 38, you have this through verse 42. It's a very interesting history that Jacob gives going back 20 years where he has suffered mistreatment at the hands of Laban. And in spite of it, God has been faithful to Jacob every step of the way. So Jacob is a man, when he talks about the faithfulness of God, is not just talking about it from the intellectual perspective. He's talking about it from the experiential perspective. And this is the type of knowledge of God's faithfulness that God wants his people to have. 
And that's why many of you today may find yourselves in circumstances where you are not being treated fairly. So the story of Jacob and Laban, is, as Jacob is narrating it to Laban, is um, a story, I think, of great encourage to all of us. The first thing Jacob begins to talk about as he narrates this story is he begins to talk about his own innocence, verses 38 through 40. And here he is speaking of how he was faithful to Laban's flocks for 20 years. In other words, Laban was not looking out for Jacob's best interest, but Jacob was certainly looking out for Laban's best interest as Jacob was given charge over Laban's flocks and never abused his position for 20 years. We pick it up there in verse uh, 38. Notice what it says. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. I've looked after your flocks for 20 years in Haran, and none of your flocks have miscarried. Meaning, I didn't allow your flocks to go through circumstances that were adverse, or they might have miscarried, but I was faithful to your flocks, supplying all of their needs, making this miscarriages among the flocks unneeded and unnecessary. And I've done it for 20 years. 20 years he did this. And then he also says there in verse 38, I never ate of your flocks. Second part of verse 38, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. One of the things that we have set up here at Sugarland Bible Church is when you go in the doors, in and out to our main parking lot, right next to the name tag table, right above the name tag table. For example, if you're walking in and you look to the immediate right on a bulletin board, you will see these verses. These verses are in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34 and verses 2 and 3. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. One of the things that God was very disappointed with, with the shepherds of the nation of Israel, and here we can use Jacob's shepherding as sort of a metaphor for ministry. Uh, this, this is how Ezekiel 34 is using the concept of shepherding for how pastors and elders are supposed to act in ministry. One of the things that God was very disappointed with, with the shepherds of the nation of Israel, is they were not feeding God's sheep. They were feeding themselves. They were using God's people for their own aim. They were using God's people for their own agenda. 
and they were not putting the needs of the flock first. Jacob says in my literal shepherding, I never did that. I put the needs of the sheep first. And what a great calling that is to pastoral ministry. We're not here as leaders for ourselves. God has called us into a life of service where we are to feed God's sheep. Prior to feeding ourselves, we should feed the sheep of God. So many uh, churches and so many ministries, you, you listen to the way they talk. They talk about if our, if our budget is not met, we're going to be taken off the air. In which case I say, praise the Lord, maybe they should go off the air. Our church is going to fail. Um, it's always some sort of so, sort of crisis. And you, you get the idea that the ministry that exists is really not there for the people. Rather, it's the people that are there for the ministry. And if that's going on in a particular church, then that really isn't a ministry, is it? Because the ministry exists to build up, to edify the people of God. That's the point of ministry. And so we are here for God's people. We want to edify God's people. We want to feed God's people. We want to, through primarily the teaching of God's word, equip God's people. And and this is what Jesus was asking Peter about at, at the end of John 21. Around verses 15 through 17. Peter, do you love me? Ask him three times. Then feed my sheep. In other words, they're not the shepherd's sheep, they're God's sheep. And if God has called someone into the ministry, then the ministry is there not to enrich the shepherd, God forbid, but to minister to God's sheep, to keep our priorities straight. That's why we have that on the bulletin board that you can see as you come in and out of the door there towards or from the parking lot. You'll notice that Paul the Apostle was all about putting the needs of the sheep first. In Acts 20, verses 33 through 35, as a shepherd speaking to other shepherds, at the end of his third missionary journey on the island of Miletus, Paul says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the, and for the men and to the men who are with me. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verses seven and eight, Paul expresses the same idea. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an, un, in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Of course, in the outworking of God's program and purposes, the expectation of God is that those who receive God's word are to financially support or get behind a particular ministry. But that's not the point of the ministry. 
The ministry is not there to receive. The ministry is there to give. Or else why would you call it a ministry? The book of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6 places some responsibilities on the sheep. And it says the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. In other words, it's not wrong. In fact, it's expected that the people of God, as they're blessed and edified by a particular ministry, would financially support that ministry. But that's not the point of the ministry. The ministry is there for the people of God, or else it's not a ministry. And this was the mindset of the Apostle Paul in his ministry. You see it coming across in his writings constantly. This is the point of God's condemnation of the shepherds in Ezekiel's day. And Jacob was of the sort where he put the needs of the sheep first. He was a professional shepherd. And that's what he did. The flock never had miscarriages. I didn't personally eat of the flock. And so obviously for Laban to mistreat Jacob was completely and totally inappropriate. Jacob had suffering in his life that he did not deserve. Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this verse writes, The rams of your flocks I have not eaten. Jacob did not eat of the flocks when he was hungry. According to the Newsy tablets, more on that in just a second, this was a common sin of shepherds who frequently used the flocks of their masters to feed themselves, but Jacob never did. These uh, Newsly tablets, we've mentioned them before. The Newsly tablets are clay tablets that were discovered near Kirkuk in Iraq in the 1920s. They date back to the mid-2nd century millennium when Newsly was part of Haran. They contain family archives and legal documents that shed light on everyday life and customs of the Haranians and their neighbors in Mesopotamia. Some of these customs, such as the tablets of sistership, have parallel with the biblical patriarchs who lived in the same region several hundred years earlier. In other words, what we're reading here fits with the time period with everything we know about modern-day archaeology. It was common for shepherds to feed themselves first and look after the flock second. As, as Jacob is sort of protesting to Laban, Jacob says to Laban, I worked for you for 20 years, and I never did that. In fact, I personally bore loss for torn beasts, Notice, if you will, verse 39. It says, That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Now, maybe this was a cost that was beyond even Jacob's control. There were things within his control. There were things outside of his control. Maybe this one was was within his control. And he says, when the beasts were torn, um, I bore that cost personally. 
demonstrating his innocence before Laban for, for 20 years. He also talks about in verse 39 how he made good on stolen property. Verse 39, you, you required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. These are things clearly outside of his control. Things within my control that got damaged, I took care of. Things outside of my control that were stolen, I've made good on. The cost of of theft was covered by me. He goes on in verse 40 and he explains as a shepherd all of the adverse circumstances that he endured and the sleepless nights that he went through looking out for Laban's flocks. Notice, if you will, verse 40. It says, Thus I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. He's talking about the rigors of shepherding. We have a tendency to sort of look down on shepherds uh, in the natural world, sort of a low-level job, low-education job, we think, and we don't understand how much work it takes to look out for the sheep, particularly if you're a shepherd like Jacob that put the flocks of someone else before his own needs. And that really, by way of metaphor, by way of extension, is what pastoral ministry is. It's a rigorous pursuit where you are putting the needs of others above and beyond yourself. Jacob says, I went through all of these rigors and I did it for 20 years. This is why, Laban, I have righteous indignation against you with your very callous and casual charges against me. And he talks there in verse 40 about sleepless nights that he went through in this role as a shepherd. Thus I was by day, the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep rather fled from my eyes. Reminds me an awful lot of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. In fact, if you were to go home today and you were to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 22 through 33, we're not going to read all of that. And you look at the ordeals that the Apostle Paul routinely went through for the sheep you would see a man who was clearly not in the ministry for himself, but was a man who pursued the principles of selfless shepherding. Talks about all his struggles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And a night and a day I have spent in the deep, meaning I spent an entire night and day floating on the ocean. We don't know exactly how all of that manifested itself, 
but clearly Paul was a man who suffered for the cause of Christ, just as Jacob suffered for Laban's flocks and Laban, when Laban, all of this time, 20 years, that's a long time, was mistreating Jacob. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this in the Code of Hammurabi. Now, that's a little different than the Nuzi tablets that we explained earlier. The Code of Hammurabi is a Babylonian legal code that precedes the Law of Moses by around four centuries. So it, like the Nuzi tablets, becomes a tremendous source of light for the customs of the day in patriarchal times, in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, and the Code of Hammurabi, in the Code of Hammurabi, any charge of negligence could be challenged in court. A shepherd gave a receipt to the owner for the animals he took. He had no, he had to return the animals with a reasonable increase, although he was allowed to use some for food. He was not responsible for those killed by lions or by lightning, but any loss due to carelessness had to be repaid tenfold. In other words, what you're reading here in terms of Jacob's protest is not just uh, fiction. Veggie tales, so to speak. This is actual history that conforms with everything we know from extra-biblical sources about the patriarchal time period. The quote continues, This shows that Jacob did not, did not demand or make use of his own civil rights under the law in effect in that area of the country. This reveals Jacob's attitude in that he could have had an even greater gain if he had resorted to the laws of his day to his benefit, but he did not. In other words, he had legal rights. He could have pursued against Laban, but he didn't take those legal rights. And yet, as this quote ends, last sentence or the last couple of sentences, in Genesis 31:41, Jacob spelled out Laban's unfaithfulness These 20 years I have been in your house. And he went on to divide the timing. He's going to take that 20-year time period and sort of break it down for us, for Laban. And yet what's interesting in all of this is Jacob became wealthy. In fact, when you go back to Genesis 30 and verse 43... In the midst of this unfair treatment, it says, says, so the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. In other words, he was prospering in spite of the unfair treatment that he was receiving. Now, how does a man like Jacob prosper in a foreign land in spite of unfair treatment? It's the faithfulness of God. It's it's the same reason that God sustains you and in some cases even prospers you even though you're getting the short end of the stick, so to speak. See, our, our success in life, our provision in life, where does it ultimately come from? It doesn't come from the hand of man. 
It comes from the hand of God. And God wants us to have such a close walk with Him and such a close relationship with Him that He will intentionally, and this has happened in my life, and no doubt it has happened in your life or will happen in your life. Don't get mad at God when it starts to happen. It's part of the process that God uses to conform us into the image of His Son. In spite of unfair treatment, some way, somehow, the bills get paid. The provision is there. In some cases, God's people, in the worldly sense, even start to get ahead. And you look at your life and you say, well, how can, how can that happen? And God says, I'm the reason it's happening. Why in the world are you looking to a man or looking to a corporation or looking to a company for your provision in life? I'm the provider. And when you experience that, suddenly the Bible passages that talk about the faithfulness of God take on a new depth and a new meaning. A meaning that you could not really understand unless you walk through God, what God wanted you to walk through at the experiential level. So no miscarriages in the flocks. I'd never ate of the flock. I bore loss for torn beasts. I made good on stolen property. I even endured um, adverse circumstances as a shepherd right down to sleepless nights. I'm innocent. Therefore, my anger against you, Laban, is, is, a, is a righteous anger. That's why I'm openly contending with you in the mountains of the Transjordan. Jacob says he's innocent. And by the way, Laban, you're dishonest. And he breaks down Laban's dishonesty, verse 41, into three phases. Number one, there's a 20-year summation of what happened, verse 41a. Number two, he talks about the first 14 years, verse 41b. And then that last one there, sorry for the typographical error, it should be 41c, the remaining six years. Here's 20 years. Here's how you treated me for 14 years. Here's how you treated me for the remaining six years. Look at uh, verse uh, 41, as now Jacob is talking about how Laban has mistreated him. These 20 years I have been in your house. Why does he say your house? Because I've been in Haran, not my own native land of Canaan. When you're on foreign territory or another's property, you're sort of a victim of whatever that owner wants to do to you. I was in a state of vulnerability, yet you didn't bless me. You cursed me. And if it wasn't for the hand of God, I would have left the same way I came, empty-handed. But God looked out for me. He talks here about the first 14 years We know that story as we've studied the book of Genesis. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you for 14 years for your two daughters. I served you seven years for Rachel, and yet you gave me Leah when my heart was set on Rachel. 
So to get Rachel, I had to serve an additional seven years. Seven plus seven is 14. You lied to me. You relied on some ancient custom, which really doesn't exist, that I had to give you Rachel first, which we all know isn't true. Leah first, excuse me, which we all know is not true. So the first 14 years is largely Laban deceiving Jacob. And then he talks about the remaining six years. And six years, verse 14, for your flock, you have changed my wages ten times. Now, the remaining six years I work for you, looking out for your flock, as I've narrated to you, explained to you, my work habit was completely uh, beyond dispute. It was totally above reproach. And yet, while I was doing that, you changed my wages ten times. It's kind of interesting. This is the second time he's mentioned the change of wages. The first time he mentioned it is a little earlier in the chapter, chapter 31, verse 7. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. In other words, you thought you were going to make X and I paid you Y. And when I paid you why it wasn't a bonus, (laughs) it was a decrease. I worked for you under false pretenses. And you deceived me and you lowered my wages. You know, this, this, this business about lowering wages and not paying people what you say you're going to pay them. Everything I know about the Bible is God does not look favorably on that. God is aware when that happens to people. Deuteronomy 24, verse 15. It says, you shall give him his wage on his day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin to you. You business owners, you you managers, you, you people that are in charge of other people, you better be careful how you treat those under you. Because those under you, as they're mistreated, may cry out to me. And if they cry out to me, God says, then you're my problem. You know, it's interesting, Jesus having grown up in a a carpenter's shop, etc. You get the idea that God is pretty blue-collar. God looks out for the, the worker bees. The book of James, chapter 5 and verse 4, speaking of the wealthy owners of the last days, it says, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields which has been withheld by you, cries against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Every time uh, someone that's wealthy doesn't pay what they're supposed to pay to someone that mowed their field, God says, I I take note of that. One of the things I, I love about the Bible is it's balanced. It's one of the most balanced books I've ever read. Because it will talk about how workers are supposed to work on the job. They're supposed to work unto the Lord. 
They're, they're not to be clock watchers. They're not working to please man, ultimately. They're working to please God. And so having a job and working and, and sweating it out is a ministry unto the Lord. But the Bible is very balanced in the sense that it also talks about the people running the business. The managers, the, the CEOs, the owners. I mean, not only is there a Christian requirement on the workers, but there's a Christian requirement and a moral requirement on the manager, the boss. You'll see this whole thing in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And in Ephesians 6, verse 9, he says, And masters do the same things to them. In other words, as the workers are working unto the Lord, treat them the way they need to be treated in God. Masters do the same thing to them and and give up threatening, in other words, mistreating, abusing, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Because the boss has a boss too. The owner has an owner too. The manager has a manager too. That manager is God. And in this subject of employee-employer relationships, God is looking at the whole thing. Are the workers working unto the Lord? And is the manager or the boss treating the employee the way that the employee deserves to be treated? Or are you constantly cheating them? Are you changing their wages, lowering their wages ten times, which was what Laban was doing to Jacob? Here's the bottom line, folks, as you look at this wonderful picture of Jacob here. It's easy to serve the Lord when you're being treated right. I mean, anybody can do that. You're treated respectfully. If you're treated correctly, if you're treated right, you know, it's easy to go to your job and pour yourself completely into it. It's a totally different matter when you're not being treated fairly. And if we find ourselves in that circumstance, what the Lord says is bear up under it. I understand that in the United States of America, you can leave one job and go to another. But many people are in circumstances where they're just being treated unfairly and they can't find another job. What do you do in that circumstance? What you do, rather than getting angry at God, is you say, you know what? God is trying to make me more like Jacob and ultimately more like Jesus. This is a a divine pattern in my life. And I'm just going to work as unto the Lord to the best of my ability, and I'm going to let God sort everything else out. That's what Jacob did. And that's why he left Haran a wealthy man. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. Do you want the favor of God on your life? then learn the art and the discipline of bearing up under unfair circumstances. For this finds favor 
if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Yeah, but some of the young people asking, I'm in this college environment with these professors that know I'm a Christian and they hate my guts. And every time I express a biblical view, they lower my grade. That's the reality that some of us face regularly. I think it's more common today than it's ever been. But what are you going to tell your, your children and your grandchildren when they come to you with that complaint? You tell them that God put you there. And you'll get your professor's attention, not necessarily by being the loudest person in the room, but by being diligent in the midst of unfair circumstances. That'll get their attention. Yeah, but they never acknowledge me. Believe me, they know about you. And, and that's how we're to be on the job. That's how we're to be at work. This is the, this is the Christian way. Yeah, but what about my retirement and what about my 401k plan? What about this and that? What about my mortgage payments? That's where you say, well, Lord, you put me in this circumstance and I'm just going to trust you. With all this other financial stuff, you start doing that, you'll be shocked about how well God takes care of you. What a a wonderful example this is from the life of Jacob. Here's a 20-year summation. First 14 years, here's what happened. Here's what happened during the remaining six years. This uh, paragraph closes with him talking about what many have called today, but God. Uh, That idea, but God, where does that even come from? It comes from Genesis 15, verse 20, which, if the Lord postpones the rapture, we might eventually get to. It says in Genesis 15, verse 20, this is what Joseph experienced. Total mistreatment. Left for dead by his brothers. He says at the end of the book, as he's speaking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God, that's where the but God idea comes from. As for you, you meant for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. I I didn't enjoy from age 17 to age 30 being thrown into a pit And left for dead. I'm not doing any drama up here. I just dropped a paper. I, I know it coincided nicely with the pit, but that wasn't the wasn't the point. I didn't enjoy being thrown into a pit and left for dead and being sold into slavery from age 17 to age 30, says Joseph. But God meant it for good. And had that not happened... 
as we're going to study, the nation of Israel would have never relocated out of Canaan into Egypt to be preserved from famine. This is what we mean by divine intervention. This is how Jacob left Haran prosperous when he came in poor and he was mistreated for 20 years. So there it is in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now, Jacob speaking to Laban, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night, speaking of the dream that Laban had had. Divine intervention. Now look at something very carefully here in verse 42, as God is being described by Jacob, he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and then he says the fear of Isaac. Isaac is Jacob's father. And he describes Isaac's relationship with God as the fear of Isaac. This is uh, very interesting because it's only used here, that name for God. And it's used in verse 53. The Hebrew expression, the, the the fear of Isaac, it's never used anywhere else in the entire Bible that we know of. There it is in verse 53, same chapter. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. What does that mean, the fear of Isaac? Charles Ryrie puts it this way. The fear of Isaac means the God Isaac feared. I mean, who who was uh, this man Isaac, you know, at the end of the day? Isaac was one who feared the Lord. What does the fear of the Lord even mean? It means respect for God. I'm here to tell you folks that this is something, this fear of God is something that almost does not exist in American society. It's something that almost does not exist in the Christian world in the United States. We have become so comfortable with the grace of God and praise God for the grace of God that somehow out of our minds we've pushed the fear of God. The t-shirt, God's rad, he's my dad. And it is true. He is, Galatians 4, your daddy. And that's all part of our relationship with the Lord. But what about the fear of God? And when I mean the fear of God, I'm not talking about sitting and trembling. What I'm talking about is a respect for the ways of God and the character of God. A desire to submit to the holiness of God. And the authority of God. Where, where has that idea come gone today? And yet Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can't be smart 
without the fear of the Lord. I used this uh, graphic last week in our Independence Day message. It's a description of SAT scores in the United States, and it shows you the exact point in time, that big, bold line, when they started to deteriorate. They started to go down in 1962 and 1963, which corresponds perfectly with the year we threw Bible and prayer out of the public schools. We're going to have education without the fear of God. Well, the Bible says you get dumb when that happens. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord was present in the early church. Acts 2, verse 43, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, the Greek word translated awe is phobos, right? Where we get the word phobia, fear. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And, by the way, what's wrong with all the unsaved people? Paul explains their whole problem in Romans 3, verse 18. He says, there is no fear, phobos, of God before their eyes. They don't think about God. They don't respect the ways of God. The thought of God is suppressed. And that's when a nation's mind becomes dark. The, the fear of the Lord disappears. That's why I find this title that Isaac uses as he's explaining his circumstances to Laban. He talks about the God that my father feared. The great American statesman Daniel Webster was once asked, Daniel Webster being one of the smartest people that ever lived, one of the great sources of light in America's founding era. The great American statesman Daniel Webster was once asked, what is the most sobering thought that has ever entered your mind? What's the greatest thought you've ever had? He quickly responded, my personal accountability to God. No wonder he produced what he produced with his life. He walked in the fear of the Lord. What do the seraphim say as they stand round about the throne day and night? It's in that great calling section where Isaiah is called into the ministry. The seraphim don't say, God's rad, he's my dad. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So, so, so take this expression that Jacob uses, the God that my father Isaac feared, and you should underline that. And you should also underline it in verse 53. It doesn't appear elsewhere for whatever reason, but it becomes one of the titles of God, the names of God. Are you keeping a list in our study in Genesis? This is bare minimum here, folks, of the names of God as we've learned in the book of Genesis. He is called earlier in the book El Roy, 
which means you are the God who sees me. (laughs) This is why God took concern over how Jacob was being treated by Laban because God was seeing the whole thing. And then there's this one. Genesis 21, verse 33. El Olam, the everlasting God. The God who has always been and will always be. And the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to come to your door, not if, but when. And they're going to try to sell you on an ancient heresy called Arianism, taught by the heretic Arius in patristic church history that there was a time in which he was not. Arius even had a song. I don't know if I should sing it for you. We have no tape recordings from that time period. But the the rhythm of it or the rhyme of it was there was a time in which he was not. Jesus is a created being, Arius said. The Jehovah's Witnesses... They think they've got some new idea. They're just recycled Arianism. They think Jesus was created. In other words, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. That's not what El Olam means at all. Jesus, as the second member of the eternally existent Godhead, has always been and will always be. How about this one? Genesis 22, Jehovah Jireh. Remember when Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac and you remember the animal there was caught in the thicket. Use this animal instead for the sacrifice. What title was given to God? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. You might be worried about inflation. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide every single need you have, financially, physically, spiritually. The provision is there. God's very name indicates that. So here are the six names for God that we have studied so far. Elohim, Genesis 1.1, speaking of God's power. Great title for God because that's Genesis 1 where God created everything in six days. And then you move into Genesis 2 verse 4 and you get a second name for God, Yahweh, which is relational. He wants to have a relationship with us. What a great title for God in Genesis 2 because there it's an amplification of day 6, the first man and woman. He wants a relationship with them. Then you have El Roy, meaning God sees, speaking of his awareness. And there in parenthesis are the verses where you can find all of these. El Olam, the eternal God, Jehovah Jireh, speaking of God's provision. And now here's number six. The God whom Isaac feared. Speaking of the fact that God is to be reverenced. This is why I've entitled this message, Our Multifaceted God. Different names of God manifested according to the need of the moment. 
We're serving a pretty big God here, folks. It's not that God changes and becomes these. He's always been these. It's just he'll manifest a different attribute of who he is depending on the need that we're in. Are you familiar with the seven men who rule the world from the grave? Charles Darwin gave people the ability to explain creation without God. Karl Marx, the father of communism. John Dewey, godless secular education. Sigmund Freud, explaining all behavior through sexual psychoanalysis. John Maynard Keynes, another man that rules the world from the grave. He says the way governments get ahead financially is they go into debt. Keynesian economics. Gee, Pastor, why don't you talk about something relevant? Soren Kierkegaard. Values clarification. Morals are relative. These guys are all dead. And yet they're ruling our world with their ideas. Because their ideas live on long after they're dead. Dave Breeze wrote a great book on all seven of these guys. I'd recommend it to you called Seven Men Who Ruled the World from the Grave. And right there, number three, is a guy named Julius Wellhausen who came up with the documentary hypothesis. What is the documentary hypothesis? Moses didn't write the first five books of the Pentateuch. Moses did not write Genesis. This was compiled compiled by a compiler long after the time of Moses, relying upon certain documents that existed long after the time of Moses. The J is when the compiler was relying upon the Yahweh's source. The E is when the compiler was relying upon the Elohim's source. The the D is when the compiler was relying upon the Deuteronomist source. And the P is when the compiler was relying upon the priestly code. Look at look at the dates, way after the time of Moses. I mean, you don't really think Moses wrote the book of Genesis, do you? Julian Wellhausen is ruling the world from the grave. Because a lot of you, without even knowing the expression or the name Julian Wellhausen, have a lot of Wellhausenisms, if I'm pronouncing that right, in your brain cells. Because this is what you hear constantly through liberal theology. In fact, if I had gone to another school other than the school that I went to, I would have enrolled and they would have just taught me this documentary hypothesis and treated it as a fact and not even given me the option that maybe Moses actually wrote these books. Colossians 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You better make sure that your mind is not captivated by worldly thinking or godless men who espoused ideas that rule the world even though those men are long dead. 
You better watch out for Darwin. You better watch out for Marx. You better watch out for Wellhausen. You better watch out for Dewey. You better watch out for Freud. You better watch out for Keynes. You better watch out for Kierkegaard. Well, why are you even bringing this up, Pastor? Because this is what Wellhausen said. He said, the reason that there are different names for God in the book of Genesis is because whoever wrote Genesis was relying upon different documents. When we introduced the book of Genesis, I don't know, 30 years ago, I took you through some of this, some of the arguments that they use, and one of the Wellhausen arguments is different names for God in Genesis. I mean, you don't, you don't really think... <laughs> that the same guy that wrote Genesis 1 also wrote Genesis 2, there's two different names for God there. So obviously the guy that wrote Genesis 2 was depending upon some source that was different than Genesis 1. Wellhausen rules the world from the grave. Uh, you, you turn on A&E, Mysteries of the Bible, the History Channel, and they'll just spew this stuff at you. They never bring on a conservative to answer the arguments, like the late Gleason Archer, for example. Won't access his work, who refuted all of this philosophical nonsense, but usually they'll bring on someone from Harvard to just pump unbelief through a cable television right into your living room. You, you might not even know the name Wellhausen. Or... You, any of these other names, and yet we're constantly being influenced by their ideas. How do you answer that? Hey, Dad, um, I just got back from religion class. Hey, hey, Grandpa, I just got back from religion class, and, and they just told me that Moses did not write the book of Genesis because there's different names for God here. What do you say? See, you're expected as a Christian to have an answer for that, particularly to those within your sphere of influence. Because most Christians are attending churches that don't even bring up stuff like this. By the way, do you know the youth at Sugarland Bible Church get exposed to apologetics at this level? There's a lot more going on in our children's ministry than babysitting. In fact, we don't do babysitting. We do apologetics training. You trust us with your young people, we're going to prepare you, prepare them for what they're going to get hit with by way of secular philosophy, and we're going to prepare you as an adult on how to lead your young ones, children and grandchildren, through the philosophical maze that they're now working, walking through. The answer is just very simple to this Wellhausen stuff. Different names for God are used for different literary purposes. God is a big God. God is multifaceted. His character and his nature never change. But depending on what the need is, he will manifest to himself of something of himself to you 
to help you with your need. If you're needing understanding of his power, he's Elohim. If you're needing an understanding of his relational quality, he is Yahweh. If you need provision, he's Jehovah Jireh. Not separate documents, not separate authors, but the same God who's multifaceted. It's it's just like reading the Gospels. I mean, why do we need four Gospels? Isn't one enough? Why do I need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Matthew would have been just fine. Because each Gospel is bringing out a different facet of the same Jesus. In Matthew, he's the king. In Mark, he is the servant. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he's the God-man. So you learn a different facet of the same Jesus by reading a different gospel. It's the same way with these names of God. Wellhausen, jumping to the conclusion of different authors, completely misses that point. And then you explain that to your children or your grandchildren. They say, okay, I get it. I'm equipped. You're fulfilling your, your purpose. In, in raising me in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You look there at the second part of verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now, Jacob speaking to Levon, you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen... El Roy, God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Laban, all the stuff you said back in verse 27 about you know how I wanted to bless you as you were leaving, that's a lie. You wanted to hurt me. You wanted to injure me. And in fact, I would have left Haran empty-handed based on how you mistreated me. But God, God looked out for me. Genesis 31 verse 12, God says, I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. By the way, folks, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he sees your issues and problems. He just says, trust me through them. I'll end uh, with this verse, Psalm 27, verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. That's the experience of Laban. And that's the experience God is walking many of us through. May we embrace it and not resist it as God builds our character into Christ's likeness. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for how it ministers to us at the deepest need. And we're so grateful, Lord, that our greatest need has been covered. 
in the person of Jesus who stepped out of eternity into time 2,000 years ago to live a life in our place that we couldn't live, to pay a debt in our place that we couldn't pay. And he simply asks us to believe, which is another way of saying trust. Trust in what I've done. Don't trust in your own good works to be made right with me. Trust in the good work that I've done for you. I do pray, Lord, that many, many people within the sound of my voice would be placing their faith exclusively in the Savior. We invite men and women to do that even as I speak. It's not a matter of pledging to do better. It's not a matter of walking an aisle. It's not even, Lord, good advice to be obeyed. Rather, it's good news to be believed. And I ask that many, many people in the building, watching online, listening to archives after the fact, would take this opportunity to place their faith exclusively in Jesus. And we ask that you would accomplish this great, great work. I pray that you'll be with us as we continue to move through the book of Genesis, finishing up, Lord willing, Genesis 31 next week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.